Uh, for our passage today, we will be reading from a couple of selections in the book of Revelation uh, 21 and 22. I'll give you a second to open your Bibles if you have those, and then we will read. All right, Revelation 21 verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will need no light or lamp of sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Always works better when you turn it on. Very dear brother came up to me about six months ago, and he said, I've started taking notes on Sunday, and I realize now your sermons are really logical. Sort of say thank you. Uh, it, it, he said, I, he, he's trying to help me realize that he's growing. 
He said, it's been really good to talk, to take notes. You talk differently than we're used to hearing, than I'm used to hearing. And as I'm taking notes, I'm getting a lot more out of the messages than I did before. Why do I tell you that? Let me urge you, today maybe you want to take notes. Um, it, it, I think it'd be especially helpful this morning, in part because we're going to do something a little different. We're not going to stay in any one scripture passage for very long, but I want to trace with you a very prominent theme throughout scripture. And I want you to see this theme because it's foundational for how a personal God engages you and me personally. One of the strongest, most pervasive metaphors in the Bible for understanding our relationship with God is marriage, is his marriage to us. That's where Revelation ends up, with the bride of the Lamb, his wife, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, and she is stunning, absolutely beautiful, radiant. She's dressed as a bride for her husband, totally oriented around him and around the life that they're going to build together, a life where they will be together, reigning together forever and ever. That's where scripture ends because that's been God's intention all along, to get to the place of living with his people in a renewed, restored world. And so that we will have an idea of what he has in mind. He has been talking to us about what his relationship with us is like throughout scripture, and he does that by taking the most intimate relationship that we have with each other as human beings, where a man and a woman become joined together, they become one flesh. God takes that relationship and he says, that's me and my people. That's me and you. We're married. We are joined together. And so as you read scripture, you hear God say things to his people like Isaiah 54, 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. Or he'll unpack a little more intimately what does it mean for him to be your husband. Isaiah 62, 5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, and just sort of think about what that means for a moment. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Sense of intimacy here coupled with joy. Or to make that intimacy even more explicit, he says in Ezekiel 16:8, when I saw you, speaking of the his people, when I saw you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. That's how God thinks about his relationship with his people. One where he is joined to his people in a close, intimate, committed relationship. Something that you can talk about through the lens, through the analogy, through the metaphor of human marriage. It's been his intention from the start, from the very first human being that he created. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 quotes from Genesis 2. He quotes about Adam and Eve, but when Paul quotes it, he uses that passage to talk about the relationship that God and his people have to each other. A little refreshment here. Paul's been talking in Ephesians 5 about how men and women relate to each other in marriage. And he wants to ground his argument in something solid. He wants to take it out of the realm of personal ideas about marriage, out of societal ideas about marriage. 
out of the things that he thinks about marriage, out of what his surrounding culture does. He wants to take marriage out of subjectivism. And so he grounds his argument in how Christ and his church relate to each other. He says that relationship between Jesus and his church has something to say about our relationships. That men and women are to relate to each other in marriage like Jesus and his church do. And then Paul does something really wild. To help us understand what that relationship is like between Jesus and his bride, he grounds that relationship in creation. In that time before sin entered the world, when God presented Eve to Adam. That was the moment when Adam realized, here at last is someone, as Genesis 2.20 puts it, who is suitable to him. Now up to that point in time, Adam had been studying the animals. God told him to name them. And so Adam had been figuring out what was appropriate to each one. He analyzed their characteristics, put likes with likes, dislikes, he separated, and so said things like, you all are cats, you're part of the cat family, you all are dogs, you go over in this category. And what Adam discovered throughout this process, verse 20, was that in the entire animal kingdom, no suitable helper was found for him. All the animals had a helper, a partner, but there was no one who matched him, no one who could enter into what God had given him to do, no one until Eve stood there. Now there is someone, someone who is like him, but not exactly. She's not him, she's like, but she's different. There's now unity and diversity in the very first community brief aside, human civilization from its inception has always had a combination of unity and diversity, of like and unlike. God built it in. Adam is ecstatic. He goes off praising her, how amazing she is, tying together how she is like him, but not entirely. Fully human, yet very different. And so he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, we're alike. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. We're not the same, like and unlike. And scripture concludes at that point in Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Paul takes that conclusion from Genesis 2, chap chapter 2, and he repeats it in Ephesians 5. But in that context, he's no longer talking about human beings and human beings, no longer talking about men and women. Instead, he's talking about Christ and his church. He says, chapter 5, verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, here's the Old Testament quote, Therefore, based on how... Jesus and his church relate, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, Paul says, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You hear that? What we see between Adam and Eve is a shadow. It's not the full reality. It's a dim reflection of a much greater reality, the reality that the Son of God left his home, left his father to seek a bride, 
One who as an image of God was like himself, but as an image, not God himself, like and unlike, in order to form a union with her where the two become one. From Genesis to Revelation, God intends to marry his people, to form an intimate bond with us, one that is, if anything, stronger than any human marriage could be. Now, you have to make sure you get the order right here. We don't learn about Christ and his church by observing husbands and wives, human husbands and wives. We don't look at our marriages to understand what Jesus and his bride are like. Instead, it's the other way around. We learn about husbands and wives from how Christ and his church interact. Christ and his church are the original. They're the most solid, most ultimate relationship. And so what we do in our marriages should reflect what he and his people do in theirs. So if you want to understand who God is and how he relates to you, you have to see where all of his interactions are leading. That they are leading to a marriage feast, a wedding, where he and his people consummate a union that will last eternally. When you understand that endpoint, it helps you understand what he's doing in your life right now. What he says, what he does, what he brings in, he's getting you ready to bring you to that place where you now desire, where you want what he's always wanted. Now, it sounds amazing. It's incredibly challenging. Actually, it's challenging for both parties, for us and for him. And that's what we're going to unpack today. We're going to ask three questions to unpack that. First, what is the nature of God's marriage? What is it like for him to be in a committed relationship with you and me? Second, what does he do in his marriage? How does he respond to you and me? And then third, very briefly, what does that mean for us? What are some of the implications of being in this kind of relationship with God? So what's the nature of his marriage? What's he doing in his marriage? And then what does that mean for us? First, as you read through scripture, you discover that God has what you would describe as a very difficult marriage, a very hard marriage. It's a marriage in which he gives everything that he has to his spouse and she walks away from him. She gets bored, runs after other things, runs after other lovers because she thinks that they will do more for her than he will. And so you get passages like the first three chapters of Hosea where God tells the prophet, chapter 1, verse 2, Go, marry a promiscuous woman, and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Now I want you to imagine what that moment was like for Hosea. Put yourself there in his head. You're having your quiet time. You're reading scripture, you're praying to the Lord, and you hear, Go, Marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. And you think, that can't be the Lord. That's something I ate. But then that voice doesn't go away and it starts to press itself down in on you. And you think, that is not the word of the Lord to me. It can't be. Who would do something like that? Who would knowingly go marry someone who everyone knows is sleeping around? Someone that God promises will actually sleep around on me. Who would do something like that? Who would do that to themselves? Who would put themselves purposely into that kind of relationship? Who would do that? 
And God says, I did. That's my experience of living with my people, of living with you. It's not the only time that he says things like that. We heard earlier in Ezekiel 16 that God made a marriage covenant with his people, but then later in that same chapter he says, verse 15, but you, my people, you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. He goes on to talk there about how they built relationships with other nations. Relationships that they depended on more than they depended on him. Relationships that they valued more than they valued him. Ones they put more time and energy into because they thought what those nations offered, safety, security, wealth, power, that those offers were better than anything God was offering. But it wasn't only the nations that they prostituted themselves with. They also did that with various idols, other gods, things that promised them fertility, protection from enemies, peace of mind, financial security, all the same kind of things that we want out of our world. And they thought that trusting those things would give them a better life than God would, and so they ran after those things more than they ran after God. They were unfaithful, adulterous in their most important relationship. They made their relationship with God difficult by ignoring him because they wanted something else. And sadly, those temptations don't stay safely tucked away in the Old Testament. They are in the New Testament as well. Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. There's that marriage metaphor again. Christ's people are betrothed to him, engaged to be married, and yet Paul is jealous for them for their sake. Why? Verse 3, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. They're betrothed to one husband, but they're not holding tightly to him. Something's pulling them away. They listen when people tell them they could have a better life, that a different gospel will give them better payoffs, that it will give them what they need to get through life, that the sustaining love and life that comes to them through Jesus is not enough, that they can lean on other things in order to find the strength and the hope to keep going. And when that happens, they're being led astray. That's the same kind of thing that James talks about in chapter 4 of his letter. James asks a great question, verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You realize that that's a question for the ages, right? What is it that generates all the hatred and animosity between people? What is it that generates the quarreling and fighting? James links it back to each person's passions. Now you have to be careful there because passions is not necessarily 
bad passions. They can be, but they don't have to be in this passage. They're not bad passions. Instead, he says they're a different kind. They are passions that are at war. Passions that are fighting for control. Passions that insist on being the number one drive in your life. And so you can take a good desire, like the desire for your parents to think well of you. And that desire can be a desire that's at war. It can be this drive to win their approval at all costs, regardless of what it does to your health or well-being. It's a passion that takes a good thing and elevates it to an ultimate thing. Or take the desire not to suffer. It's a good thing. But you can raise it to be an ultimate thing. Something that you will now live in such a way that you avoid anything that might ever cause anything unpleasant to enter into your life. Even when that means that you have to avoid things that would be good for you or good for other people. Or take the desire to do well at work or at school. That can become so all-consuming that you wrap your identity in it. So that you can no longer be joyful, you can no longer be satisfied in life unless you're getting the results that you think you deserve. When your desires, your passions rise to the level of passions at war, then even a desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing. And it produces quarrels and fights between people. Which all makes sense, right? If I want something so badly that it's my number one goal in life, and if you get in the way, then I'm going to act in such a way as to get you out of the way. I will fight and I'll quarrel so that I can have what I want. Nothing surprising about that. What is surprising is what James does with that. He drops it into a much larger picture. He goes on, verse 4, he says, You adulterous people. And you think, wait, that, that's odd. I thought we were talking about fighting and quarreling here. How do we get to adultery? You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, hatred with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see the connection? He says, when you and I elevate a good thing to an ultimate thing, when that thing now controls us, when our passion for money, sex, power, health, physical health, mental health, success, when that good thing controls us, then we're adulterous where it counts most. Because we've given the love and the loyalty that we owe to God to that other thing, to something else. We've said this thing is now more important to me than God is. This thing will satisfy me more than he ever could. Therefore, I will bend all my energies around having this thing. James says when that happens, you and I are spiritual adulterers. We've sinned against our covenant with God. You realize God is in a very hard marriage. And we're the ones who make it hard on him. Now, how does he feel about that? Hosea is an amazing book. Because God opens up his heart to these same people who have been unfaithful to him. You think that's, that, that's crazy. What do you do when someone stomps on your heart? You shut down, right? You close up shop, you never let that person see that side of you again, so that they never have the chance to hurt you again. That makes sense. God doesn't do that. The book of Hosea starts by telling you 
about Hosea's marriage to an adulterous woman. But after those early chapters, the rest of the book is God telling you his story of being married to an adulterous wife. And in doing that, he opens up his heart more. He doesn't simply talk about all the things that his people have done. He talks about the hurt and the anger that is inside of him. He talks about how he's going to lay out consequences for what they've done, consequences that come really close to threatening to end the relationship. But then you get a surprising twist in chapter 11. He takes you down another deeper level into his own heart, and he says, verse 7, My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. It's like God saying at that point, I am so done with you. But the book doesn't end there, and the passage doesn't end there, because God is not done. He goes on, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Sit down sometime, read this book in one setting. Get this picture of God pulling his hair out. Here's how badly you've treated me, and I don't know what to do with you. But I will not treat you like you deserve. Why? Because I'm God. I'm not like you. I don't have an unfaithful heart. I don't live with you according to your fickleness. I live with you according to my own heart. My compassion grows warm and tender, and that's still true. You can count on it. Or as he says in Malachi 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you've turned away from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. God refuses to turn away from his people even when they turn away from him. And that is the challenge of God's marriage. God's spouse makes it hard on him, and because he will not give her up, it's hard to live through and hard to navigate. But he won't give her up because once God has decided to love someone, he doesn't change his mind just because they're difficult to live with. He promised to love, and he believes in the power of love to overcome sin and evil. You see that worked out with Hosea and his wife. And so you keep eagerly reading the rest of Scripture because you want to know, God, is it possible for that to work out with me and the rest of your people? That's point one, the nature of God's marriage. Point two, what does that then require from him in order to keep this marriage going? What does he do day to day in order to get to that place in Revelation where his bride is absolutely beautiful, where there is no hint of faithlessness, no hint of adultery in her? Let me cut to the chase. He adjusts himself to her. He adjusts to what she needs from him. Now, I want to let that sink in for a moment because I don't think many of us think that way about God. 
We read scripture and what do we hear? We hear God's commandments. We hear his laws and his principles that we need to obey. We hear his wisdom that we need to learn because we don't have it. We hear him rebuke sin, call us to repent, call us to change. And my fear is that we walk away from scripture thinking that we are the primary ones who have to adjust ourselves to him, which is not hard to agree with, right? Take one look at the way that you and I live any given day. A lot of evidence comes out of our lives that shows, yeah, our approach to life's not always best. We have lots of reasons every day to agree, yeah, we need to change. We need to adjust how we think and how we act so that we now are where God is. We have to adjust ourselves to him. That is true. But if that's all we see in scripture, then we're going to come away with this idea that we're the ones who give up the most to be in this relationship that we're the ones who have to do the most adjusting if we're ever going to have a good marriage with this God, and that's not true. Think about life from God's perspective, and you realize that he is the one who is constantly adjusting to us. He changes his approach from one person to the next, to the next, to the next, depending on what it is that we each need from him in order for us to grow into that faithful, committed spouse that he has in mind. Let me take three examples really quickly. Three Old Testament prophets. Many of you may be familiar with Isaiah's experience of his call into ministry. He went into the temple, unexpectedly ran into the last person he expected to find there. He saw God, high and exalted, seated on his throne. Winged cherubim, flying all around, crying out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The temple shook, filled with smoke. But Isaiah shook as well. He cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, why did God show himself to Isaiah like this? A little bit of background here. Isaiah is most likely from an aristocratic family, probably related to the royal family. He certainly had access to various kings, and he was not afraid to talk to them. He was not afraid to confront them. He's what we would call an elite. Also, clearly highly educated, very gifted with words. <laughs> We're still reading his book nearly 3,000 years later. And yet something was wrong with his mouth. Something was unclean at the source of his giftedness. Something that he did not see until he saw God. Something that if left untouched would have eventually been his own undoing. And God needed to show him something that shook him to his core. That shook his confidence in him, in himself. But you realize that's not how God always engages people. Think about Jeremiah, another prophet. When God calls him in chapter 1 of Jeremiah, the prophet is anything but self-assured. He tells God when God calls him to be his prophet, verse 6, oh, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a youth. Jeremiah is a man who's already shaken. Not the most confident person that you meet in Scripture, and that lack of confidence seems to dog him throughout his life. Chapter 12, he talks about how easily he's worn out by people's wickedness. Chapter 15, he has about had it 
with how hard ministry is, and he threatens to quit. Jeremiah did not need to be shaken by God. He already came that way. So God doesn't shake him. When God calls him, God encourages him, tells him, chapter 1, Do not say, I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Jeremiah needed something different from God than Isaiah did. He needed to stop shaking. And so God altered his approach to Jeremiah to give Jeremiah what he needed in his weakness. One more, Elijah. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah had a major victory over the prophets of Baal. And all Israel acknowledged that Yahweh alone, not Baal, is the God of Israel. Chapter 19, very next chapter, the queen, who was backing Baal, threatens to kill Elijah, and Elijah runs, terrified of her. Get the contrast here. Chapter 18, he's unshakable, now completely shaken. So what does God do? How's he going to engage him? Elijah runs to where he can find God, to the mountain of God, sleeps in a cave overnight, and God tells him the next day to go outside because he's going to appear before him. Elijah then has seven, several experiences, one right after the other. First, a wind comes and blows that's so strong it tears the mountain apart, but God was not in the wind. Then there's an earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake, and then finally a fire, but God was not in the fire. Three things that tell you how powerful God could be if he wanted to. But each time it was clear. God was not in the fire, not in the earthquake, not in the wind. Instead, we learned 1 Kings 19, 12, after the fire came a gentle whisper. And it's in that whisper that Elijah encounters the presence of God. God teaches Elijah in that moment, I could shake you if I needed to, but I won't. Because in your weakness, that's what you need to be restored. Do you see what God does? How incredibly unique and individual he is? How he adjusts himself to the need of the person in front of him, to each person. Isaiah needed to be shaken to be a faithful messenger. Jeremiah needed to be strengthened so that he'd stop shaking. And Elijah needed to know that Jezebel is not the strongest person in the world. That God could shake him, but won't. God adjusts himself to the level of our brokenness. But he also adjusts to us as we change over time. Think about John, the apostle. John was part of Jesus' inner circle, and you get a, a sense of just how close he was during the night when Jesus was betrayed, Jesus just told his disciples that one of you is going to betray me. Peter, in John chapter 13, says to John, ask him which one he means. And so John, verse 25, leans back against Jesus as they're lying around the table and asks his questions. Very close, warm moment. Very comfortable with Jesus. At that time, that's what John needed. Fast forward to Revelation chapter 1, where John sees Jesus in all his resurrected glory. And we're told, verse 17, that the very first thing that he does 
is pass out, that he falls at Jesus' feet as though dead. What's changed in between? John's in a different place in his faith. Not the same person that he was. Jesus hasn't changed. But what John needs to see of Jesus at this moment has changed. What the church needs to see of Jesus has changed. And so God does what? God adjusts himself, adjusts his approach to how he engages his people to keep up with what they need in order for them what? To be that suitable partner to him. He doesn't change. But he understands that we do in different ways. That we still fail, we're, we're being sanctified, that's ongoing change, but we still sin. And we're growing, we're maturing in our faith. And because we change, what we need from him changes. Which makes his relationship with us, what? It's dynamic. It's enduring and solid, it's reliable because it's based on him. It's dynamic and changeable because it involves us which calls for him to adjust, to bend himself around us endlessly. To do so when he doesn't have to, when he shouldn't have to, but when out of love for us, he does. That brings us to point three really fast. What does this mean for us? Let me run through three things just real quickly. First, it's a call to humility about ourselves. It's an amazing thing to realize that God wants you that Jesus came to this earth looking for you. That he did that simply to establish a relationship with you. That's amazing. But it's humbling when you think about what it costs him to stay in that relationship that he started. The fact that he does whatever is necessary for you to live eternally happy with him does not obscure the fact that to do so means that he is constantly adjusting his interaction with you. That he has to adjust himself to your faithlessness, to your neediness, to your immaturity. The fact that he does so invites us to think a little less arrogantly, a little less highly of ourselves, resets us, makes us a little bit more realistic about ourselves, and should lead to thanksgiving and praise and joy that he would want us this badly. So first, Realizing that God's marriage is dynamic is personally humbling. Secondly, it tells us now how we need to live with others. Jesus is very explicit in John chapter 13, verse 34. He tells his disciples after he washed their feet because none of them were willing to serve. You hear the, how they're both sinful and immature. He told them, just as I have loved you, you are now to love one another. Well, what's that mean for our relationships? Our starting point with each other has to be how God relates to us. We have to approach others in their faithlessness, in their immaturity, by doing what? By adjusting ourselves to the need of the person in front of us. We can't make anyone take us up on that offer. Plenty of people who don't take God up on his. But someone else's response is not our responsibility. Our responsibility, our privilege, after having been given what we need from God, is to offer to others what they need. So that if they choose, they too could grow into everything that Christ wants them to be. We are called, after experiencing this relationship, we are called 
to adjust ourselves to others in our relationships, like God adjusts himself to us. So realizing God's relationship with you is dynamic. First humbles you. Second, it calls you to actively wrap yourself around the needs of other people. And third, it makes you realize that this is the fundamental way that we will relate to each other, not just now, but for all eternity. One day, God's people will no longer resist him. We're no longer going to sin against him, no longer sin against each other, but there is no day coming when we will stop growing because we are on an infinite growth curve. The destiny of God's church, of his people, is to grow into all the fullness of Christ, as some versions put it, out of Ephesians 4.15. As Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. That's our future. To develop maturity as Christ's body in every respect that matches its head, that matches Christ. We're not ever going to be God's equal, but God plans a long-term partnership with us such that we become, we grow into, being a suitable partner to him, the one that he's been looking for. Now, thought exercise. How long do you think that's going to take? It's certainly going to be longer than the few short years that you and I have left on this planet. But how long will it take to grow up in respect, every respect, to the mature body of Christ? Is that going to take a couple thousand years in the next life? A couple million? be really quick if it was a couple billion that we were able to grow into the infinity of the Almighty. That's a little hint that we're not going to do that. We're talking here about the trajectory of an eternal lifetime. Ongoing growth, forever growth, that's just normal. That means that you are not static, and no one that you relate to is static. No one has topped out. You are not what you once were, no one that you relate to is what they once were. But you're also not yet what you will be. And no one in the church is either. Any hope of relating to each other then has to take that reality into account. The reality that you and the person that you're relating to are both persons in motion, persons who are growing, who are developing. If you ignore this, you will start trying to relate to someone who no longer exists. You may have had this experience if you went away to college. You go away to school and you do what? You keep growing, you keep developing. You have new experiences, new successes, new setbacks, new hardships. You try new things, you adapt to new circumstances, you change, you grow. It's hard, it's exciting. You're growing into yourself, becoming more of who you are. But your poor parents that you left back home, they're clueless. You can touch base with them, but if you and they are not intentional about them knowing who you are now, then what happens? They remember you like you were, like you got frozen in time. And they keep trying to relate to the you who was, the you who used to be, which, by the way, works the other way around, too. They're also changing. And if you don't work to know them, you're going to relate to people who used to be, not to 
the people that they are now. This is really hard to remember once you've gotten to know someone or when you live with them day in and day out. You think you know them. Why? Because you've got history with them. But each one of us is not quite the same person at the end of the day that we were when we woke up that morning. We all lived through, what, 12, 16 hours of life-changing experiences. Experiences that gently nudge us in multiple different directions. We're all changing. And that means that our relationships can't afford to be static. But like God's dynamic relationship, our relationships with each other have to keep growing and developing to keep up with the needs of the people involved which means that you have to keep adjusting to the endless changing reality of each person that you come into contact with. You have to adjust yourself constantly to the needs of the people around you. And when that starts to feel overwhelming, like that way of life will call for just way too much from you, go back to the reality that by God's grace you are never alone in any of those relationships. Go back to the reality that in every interaction that you will have today and throughout eternity, you have a partner who has bound himself to you. That you only ever relate to other human beings from within this prior, pre-existing relationship. One that makes all your other relationships possible. Go back to the God who left his home to come searching for a bride to become one with her, to join himself with you, who not only came looking for you, but who did everything necessary to make a forever relationship possible with you. He died to pay for all of the times that you went and looked for something or someone else other than him. He poured his spirit into you, putting himself into you, so that you have strength and power beyond your wildest imagination. So that together with his people, you could become a suitable partner to him. Someone who then treats other people like he treats you. Lord Jesus, you have an amazing future for us. That you are putting into play every moment of every day. Lord, open our eyes to see everything that you're doing. Open our hearts to embrace what you're doing to give ourselves to you like you've given yourself to us and to give ourselves to each other since you've put us in the same body. Lord, I thank you for your sacrifice for us that we're about to celebrate in communion. Thank you, Lord, that you loved us to the extent of laying down your life. Thank you that you rose from the dead so that we can live with you forever. I pray this in Jesus' name. Let's take a few moments talk to our God before we receive communion.